0: Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof podcast, episode number 44, Timothy Lau, the reliability of present sense impression hearsay evidence. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang, from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Tim Lau. Tim is a member of the Research Division at the Federal Judicial Center. Our podcast today features Tim's recent article, Reliability of Present Sense Impression Hearsay Evidence, which was published in the Gonzaga Law Review. In the article, Tim looks at the psychological justifications of the present sense impression exception to the hearsay rule. The present sense impression exception has taken criticism over the years, most recently from Judge Richard Posner. As with many evidentiary rules, its suspected origins are in some kind of vague armchair psychology, the assumption that contemporaneous statements are more reliable and therefore don't need to be tested by cross-examination. Tim looks at the exception through a social scientific lens, asking if there are reasons to believe that the armchair psychology in this case might just, in fact, be right. Tim, delighted to have you on Excited Utterance, welcome. Thank you, Ed, for having
1: me today. So before I begin, I need to give a disclaimer. I am Timothy Lau, and I am a research associate at the Federal Judicial Center, which is an agency of the federal courts. I serve as liaison of the Center to the Advisory Committee on the Federal Rules of Evidence. And the views I talk about today are mine alone and do not represent the views of the Center, the Advisory Committee, or the federal courts.
0: So your article is about the present sense impression exception to the hearsay rule. Just to refresh everyone's memory on it, what is the present sense impression exception? And what are the reasons for it, at least conventionally speaking? The present sense impression, and I'll read out the definition from the Federal Rules of
1: Evidence One, it is a statement describing or explaining an event or condition made while or immediately after the declarant perceived it. The official explanation that the advisory committee wrote back in the 1970s, almost 50 years ago, it basically says it's hard to lie without time to think. Essentially, the idea of the present sense impression is that a statement made at the moment of something happening, describing or explaining the event or condition is reliable because under time pressure, it is
0: hard to lie about it. As you rightly point out in your article, present sense impressions are often mixed up with excited utterances. And in order for your analysis to be meaningful, you need to be able to isolate the effect of the present sense impression as opposed to the excited utterance exception. And what I found really interesting in your article was that you managed to find a few pure cases of present sense impression. Those are scenarios where. The reliability comes from the present sense impression as opposed to any kind of excitement. I was wondering if you might be able to tell us a little bit about one or two of these examples just to give us a concrete point through which we can talk about the rule and its justifications. Let's go back to review. An excited utterance, according
1: to the definition in Rule 8032, is a statement relating to a startling event or condition made while the declarant was under the stress of excitement that it caused. So if you just compare the definitions of a present sense impression and excited utterance, as long as a present sense impression is made under some stress of excitement, the present sense impression is by definition also an excited utterance. So it is necessary to isolate those present sense impressions from those that could also be considered excited utterance. In some sense, we are talking about present sense impressions that are made under a state of detachment as opposed to a uh, stress. It is kind of tricky to identify pure present sense impressions from cases because sometimes judges would not say out loud that present sense impression would not have been admissible under the excited utterance hearsay exception as well. But from the cases, you could find that there are some cases involving contraband, such as currency smuggling or drugs, or cases involving dialogue between government agents where these pure present sense impressions can be found. And the dialogue between government agents is something unexpected and something interesting worthy of exploration. So in my paper, I pointed to examples One of them involves basically a count of marijuana plants. So one agent was walking down a row of marijuana plants and announcing the counts of the number of plants in that particular row of marijuana plants to another agent with a clipboard who's writing the count down. And that was the present sense impression. Another example, it was in an undercover bust. There was an agent who was narrating what's going on to agents with earpieces in the undercover bust. And so the narration was a present sense impression. Yet another example I found, which is more recent and came up since the publication of the paper, was from United States versus Hughes in the 11th Circuit. And that involved a computer-aided dispatch report, what they call a CAD report. Essentially, these are communications between government agents in some operational capacity, if you will. This makes sense in that they don't involve stress because these agents are doing their job, and so they're disinterested in what's going on to some degree.
0: We could consider the pure present-sense impressions. Okay, let's get to the available social science. Why might we think that present-sense impressions are more reliable? Okay, so in terms of the science, I
1: have lots of citations in my paper, but let me sum it up quickly. Essentially, we could identify lying as having three cognitive steps. Number one, you recognize the opportunity to lie. Number two, you have to make the decision to lie. And number three, you have to craft the lie. And each of these steps is, in some sense, a type of performance. And all of them require time and effort, and they are negatively impacted by time pressure and stress. And furthermore, and this is important as well, they are heavily governed by the incentive to lie. While I talked about these steps as to conceptualized them as three distinct steps, they're kind of melded together as well. For example, if your incentive to lie is high, right, it becomes easier to make the decision to lie and to craft the lie. You would devote more mental resources towards doing it. And all of these steps are kind of operating together, right? If it's hard to create the lie, you may not be as tempted to make the decision to lie. While we talk about them conceptually as three distinct steps, they're kind of also mushed together. What the science suggests is that lying is generally not the default response and is, again, as I said before, negatively impacted by time pressure and stress. And oftentimes when people choose to lie, silence is the most common form of deception for the very understandable reason is that just not saying anything is the easiest thing to do. And if we use the cognitive miser, let's just assume that all of us are lazy and don't want to do work unless necessary to do so. If I want to conceal something, just not saying anything about it is probably the easiest thing for me to do. And so silence is understandably the most common form of deception.
0: So what you're saying then is that the conventional wisdom, the folk wisdom that motivated the writing of 8031 in the first place, is actually confirmed or at least in accord with the psychological literature suggesting that lying rec- requires cognitive load and contemporaneity is going to make it very difficult to lie in the case of a present sense impression. Yes. So what we need to understand is that there is no bulletproof case. Like this is not
1: apt that folk wisdom that it's hard to lie without time to think is absolutely correct. But there is some support for it. So it's a soft support, if you will, not a completely bulletproof case for it. We ought to consider, however, also where these present sense impressions come about. As I mentioned before, they are in dialogue between government agents. We need to apply the science not to consider only the present sense impressions, everything that's present sense impressions, but from an evidentiary point of view, it's what is present sense impression hearsay evidence. And it is necessary to distinguish between just any observations that anyone makes compared to those that actually make it in front of a judge. Again, when we look at these intergovernment communications, so I am personally a government bureaucrat. From my personal experience, there isn't much incentive for me to lie to another government agent in operational work. So let's just consider the one I was talking about, the piece, right, in the undercover bust. The government agent narrating about the ongoing events on the piece by lying can get his fellow agent in physical danger. And if we look at the display, Dispatch report. The the government agent decides to insert lies into a dispatch report. It would simply send his or her fellow agents on a wild goose chase. So if he just decides to play a joke on them and just include lies in the report, then his fellow agents would just go to the wrong place or do something wrong. When you put together all of this, it's not that people can't lie in the present sense impressions, but in the context where these things come about, we may have reason to think that the science combined. With the present sense impression as it is applied in the situations where it come up, present sense impression, hearsay evidence, is in some sense reliable.
0: But this move leads me to be a little bit concerned now that we are conflating present sense impression with the business record exception or something akin to the business record exception. If the context of some of these cases causes the present sense impression to be reliable because there's no motive to lie, and it makes sense that government agents wouldn't mislead other government agents in the same overall organization. Isn't the reliability coming from its nature as a effectively business record than as a present sense impression?
1: Yes, that is actually an interesting point. When I was talking about United States versus Hughes, about the computer aided dispatch report, I believe that was considered admissible under the business records exception itself. So there is some relationship between the present sense impression in this context and the intergovernment agent conversations with the business records, although there are other parts of it that must be met. Some pure present sense impressions would not fall within the business records exception. I was talking about contraband cases. The facts are really complicated, but someone was trying to carry currency out of the country and was traveling with his mother. The government agent, because his mom couldn't speak English and they were, uh, if I remember correctly, they're Bosnian, he translated what the government agent told him in Bosnian. translation itself was the present sense impression. So in that context, there is a little difference between the present sense impression and the business records. Although when we talk about the government agents context, yes,
0: there is some overlap between the two. We see that there are reasons to believe that this exception is reliable. What's the critique of the exception then? It seems to me that in general, there are reasons to believe that present-sense impressions are more reliable. They're not always more reliable, but as a rule, they're better than others. So what's the problem?
1: Let's consider the criticism that Judge Richard Posner of the Seventh Circuit posed in a case called United States versus Boyce, where he really went after the present-sense impression hearsay exception. In that case, he said that, that it is actually very easy to lie and it takes less than one second to do so. So George Posner is well known for hating dogs and loving cats. And he brought up the example that if he met an acquaintance in the street with a dog and the acquaintance says, isn't this a cute dog? He would be able to quickly lie that the dog is in fact cute. Now that criticism is not really valid here because yes experiments have shown that some lies can take less than one second to make but these lying experiments generally are extremely simple So the standard paradigm of these lying experiments is the die under the cup experiment. Let me just describe how this works. You promise someone that they will be paid in dollars the amount they claim they get from the throw of a dice. So if you, say, give someone a cup and you throw the dice, you let them throw the dice. And if they say six, then they get six dollars. If they say one, they only get one dollar. Now, in these experiments, the incentives to lie and the construction of the lies are obvious. So the easy lie to make is just to claim six every single time so that you get six dollars these lies also don't involve physical danger. But that is not true of present sense impression hearsay evidence. When I was talking about, for example, the computer-aided dispatch report or the narration of the ongoing events by federal agents between agents of the government, these are narrations. They are not yes or no answer. And if you want to insert lies, it is not that obvious how to do so. It takes a lot longer. And so while we can project trends from experiments and conclude that lying takes more time, what we should not do is to take the lying times in these simple experiments and say they apply to situations involving present sense impression, hearsay, evidence. Now, go back to the point where Judge Posner because Judge Posner picked a particular interesting example of a white lie. And that's interesting because you could use that as a starting point to distinguish between that type of easy lying and the real present sense impressions, hearsay evidence. So a white lie, if someone brings up a child to you or a pet to you and you say, oh, the pet is cute, even though you don't really think the pet is. So it is something that we are all trained to do. The incentives to lie are clearly obvious because if you tell someone that they're pet or the child is ugly, you're going to get into social conflict. And in fact, you would be socially ostracized if you do that with regular frequency, I would think. If you go out and tell people that their babies are ugly, that's not a very good way to go in life. And so all of us are trained to lie and are kind of primed in that context to do so. In fact, as the old saying goes, if you have nothing nice to say, don't say it. That's how we live in life. And so that lie is basically at the tip of your tongue at all times. Even if I don't look at someone's baby, I think I'll just say that the baby is cute because that's what I'm trained to do. But present sense impression here saying evidence is different. Let's go back to the narration of the ongoing events. That's not a white lie situation anymore. The agents are narrating what's going on. And if there are errors in the narration, then his coworkers are going to be in deep trouble, in physical danger. Then the narration describes what's ongoing and there's no stock answer, if you will. So there is a difference one could see between the white lie and the easy lies that Judge Posner was pointing to, to what is actually in evidence, as present sense impression hearsay evidence.
0: Let me take a different perspective or a different critique of the present sense impression exception. So let's say I agree with you and the available social science suggests that lying is in fact more difficult under these conditions. Isn't it also true that under these conditions, it may be easier to make inaccurate observations? You're doing this real time, you're unable to reflect on what it is that you've observed, and the result is that your observations may be wrong. This is kind of the old idea of jumping to conclusions. Why isn't that the critique of the present sense impression exception? That Maybe, in fact, in these cases, we really do want the ability to cross-examine the declarant because we are not convinced that the observations are accurate, even though we may be convinced that there's a higher probability of sincerity. That's an interesting question. That perception critique, there's some support for it, that
1: under time pressure on perception may be negatively impacted. That is, however, more of a criticism, I think, towards the excited utterance hearsay exception, where under stress, perception is known to really go down. Now, if we apply that criticism to the present sense impression, the answer is this. If the declarant perceives something badly under the time pressure, that perception is not going to improve after the event so that the statement that the person makes on this Stand is going to be more trustworthy than the statement that the person made at the particular time. So let's go back to say the narration. So an ongoing narrator. That's I mean the standard present sense impression. The ongoing narrator. He observes an event and just basically just narrates it. Let's say a football commentary. Someone watching a game and just narrating what's going on. Yes, there may be things that that person misses, but, but that in itself is a valuable data point because if that person's improve perception, right? What is going to improve that perception maybe looking at the tape again looking at the replay and then getting oh yes okay so I said he was offside in the first instance but then looking at the replay he doesn't look like he's offside but the initial call that that person makes is itself valuable and something that you could challenge later yes but the perception doesn't improve over time it improves with additional knowledge and so that affects the overall call but that doesn't change the initial call that the initial call itself is itself valuable evidence. If we want to consider that criticisms towards the excited utterance hearsay exception, we could talk more about that, but I don't think that's a really legitimate criticism of the present sense impression hearsay exception itself. Final question for you, Tim.
0: What's next for you? Are there additional future studies that you're planning to do in this area? I know that in some of our earlier conversation, you have a new piece on the excited utterance rule, which of course is something close to my heart. Where else do you plan your research to take you?
1: Ah, so the present sense of impression paper that we talked about in this podcast is actually a first in a trilogy of papers. So the excited underance paper that you mentioned is the second one, and that will soon be published in the Mississippi Law Journal. And then the third paper is about dying declarations. So this is the third. Here's the exception that Judge Posner is very critical of, and I also look into the research support underlying dying declarations, and that in itself is accepted for publication in the American Criminal Law Review. In some sense, all of these papers are about these old hearsay exceptions in the common law. They are based on what Judge Posner calls folk psychology. But I think there's actually some support, and all these papers identify some support for the present sense impression, excited utterance, and dying declarations, that these hearsay exceptions may be old, but they aren't exactly stupid, (laughs) and that there is actually some reason to think that these hearsay exceptions are, on a broader perspective, supportable by the science. After all, the judges who come up with these, they may be judges from a long time ago, The judges who come up with these rules are not naive. They too are observers of human life, and the rules that they create embed the practical wisdoms. So could these rules be made better and refined with additional research? Yes, but we should be careful before we go and say all these hearsay exceptions should be thrown out because they're just old. I don't think that's uh, supportable from the empirical
0: research itself. Well, Tim, thanks for taking the time to talk to us about the present sense impression exception. Great having you on the show. Thank you for having me. I've long thought that a worthy project for the evidence community would be to build one treatise or electronic database of all the available social science that informs the various rules. Given its traditional origins, evidence law is often based on folk wisdom, or as I called it earlier, armchair psychology. But these days, we have real psychologists who either study these rules directly or at least have experiments that can help us revisit the advisability of these rules. Tim pushes this dream forward with regard to present sense impressions, and his follow-up articles do the same for excited utterances and dying declarations. Ultimately though, Tim's findings leave me wondering a bit whether my dream of an empirical evidence treatise would actually be fruitful. At least for the present sense impression, Tim suggests that it has some basis, that our folk wisdom is not completely wrong. But given that his is only a half-hearted endorsement, I wonder whether the future of the debate is really nothing but the usual debate over rules and standards. Yes, Present sense impressions are perhaps generally more reliable, but not always. And if that's the case, is the certainty and efficiency of the rule on balance better than the close tailoring of a 807 type standard? That controversy is timeless, and while empirics might lightly inform that debate, empirics will hardly be conclusive. In any event, I'm pleased to know that folks like Tim are working on these issues and that the present sense impression, and apparently our beloved Excited Utterance exception, does have some legitimate empirical basis. That does it for this episode of Excited Utterance. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The associate producers are Alex Nunn and Margot Wilkinson-Smith, and the production editor is Carson Smith. Additional production assistance is provided by Aaron Parr Carranza, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join me again next time when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof.